Thanks. Good morning, Freshwater. And Merry Christmas. <laughs> you guys like Christmas? I love Christmas. Um, I love Christmas. My family loves Christmas. My kids love Christmas. Um, my wife and I arm wrestle a little bit as to how early we can start celebrating Christmas, and I'm winning because we start before December, so that's an exciting thing for me. I don't get many victories, uh, but I'll take it. Um, but I love Christmas, um, and I think I love Christmas so much because I've been thinking about this as I was preparing for the sermon. Christmas is like it's a long celebration, right? Like we get, you know, holidays and birthdays and things, but with Christmas, you get to celebrate for a long time. And, and we celebrate for a long time in our household, and we've got lots of traditions to help with that. Um, we, we set a whole day apart to uh, decorate our house and our trees and put up lights. And uh, we've got other days where we as a family just sit down and or sit down. We, we bake cookies as a whole extended family and just great ways to celebrate. Um, but I was thinking some of my favorite ways to celebrate uh, are, are with my kids. We watch movies like pretty much every night during Christmas. Um, my four-year-old, I've got a four-year-old girl, uh, Charlotte. She actually celebrates Christmas by watching some of those movies every day of the year. Um, so yeah, as a parent uh, of young kids, I'm sure you can appreciate, it still baffles me how a young kid can laugh, belly laugh, in July the same way they did in December at a movie. It's, uh, it's awesome. I appreciate it. But we love that. And the other one is uh, music, Christmas music. Like, I love Christmas music. It's on in my car. Um, it's on in the house. And not just like the, the Santa Claus reindeer, that kind of, you know, Christmas music, but the worship music. My wife gets amped up whenever we come in in December and we start singing Christmas songs and carols here in church. I love singing it um, out there in my car, in the house. Like, it just, it's great. It's awesome praise. I don't know why it's different this time of year, but it is. Um, and I was thinking about it, like, what are, my, what are those big themes that I really love singing and praising with, with Christmas music? And I think the two I settled on were joy and peace, right? Joy and peace. And I, I was thinking about it, like, why is that? And it's because joy and peace, it's not something that's always out there and available and you're in it all the time, but it's something that we can claim and celebrate because Jesus came and granted us joy and peace, we get joy and peace in our lives. We can claim that we can celebrate joy and peace because of what Jesus did when he came and was born and lived among us. We have joy and peace. And I love that. Um, there's, there's songs that just speak of nothing but joy and peace. Joy to the world, right? Joy to the world, um, I, it's one of the most published uh, Christmas songs of all time. And I love Joy to the World because it's like a shout. It's like a proclamation. And you get to use words like king and savior and Lord as you're like singing at the top of your lungs. And it's great. You can even get people who are non-Christians, they're singing. And I love celebrating joy. And then I was thinking about peace. I'm like, what's my favorite one about peace? And um, it, it, an older song, right? It's from a poem, um, it, The Bells of Christmas, or I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You guys know that one? It's a great song, right? It's from a poem uh, from the 1800s, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it's about the bells of Christmas. It opens up and says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And I love that. Even in the poem, I love that. The, the idea that we can, 
experience peace like the ringing of a bell, just peace ringing in our hearts, in our lives. And we celebrate that this time of year. Love that joy and peace. Um, one of the other big traditions we do, kind of, kind of the other last one I'll talk about at Christmas, and I don't know if you guys do this. If you don't, you should, um, is we just read the Christmas story. <laughs> so there's lots of ways to do that. Um, there's movies. There's some really cute kids' movies out about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. There's individual books, like you can buy just a book about the Christmas story. Or you could just pick up your Bible and, and head in here and start with those gospel messages and read about the blessing and the birth of Jesus and the peace and joy it brings. And if you haven't done that, I really encourage that. But when you're starting it, here was the question I asked myself this week. When you start to look at or read the Christmas story, you're going to do it for yourself or for your kids or friends or just do it this time of year. Where does that story start? It's about the birth of Jesus, but it doesn't really start with the birth of Jesus. Does it start with the angel coming down and the proclamation to Mary, to the virgin, that she's going to have a child, she's going to bear the Son of God? And then moves on from there, and her and Joseph, and their life, and trek to, to the census, and then the birth of Jesus. Is that where it starts? Does it go before that a little bit, maybe? Does it start with, with Zechariah, right? And, and does it start at that point? Or, or where does it start? So I think, I was looking at it, you know, the movies that we watch about it, the Christmas story, and even when it's read, um, you know, you even look at uh, the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, and Linus gets up there and talks about it. It all starts right around the same point. But did you know that if you start the Christmas story there, if you start it with the birth of Jesus, the proclamation to Mary, or even go a little further back, right, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you start there, you're starting at the end of the story. You're actually starting at the kind of the buildup and climax of the story. And it's great. That's the part we all love. Every movie, every story we love, we watch it for that buildup and climax. But did you know if you start there, you're missing the whole reason it's happening. You're missing the whole reason the virgin gave birth. You're missing the whole reason this child had to come. You're missing the whole reason that there was a promise and when that came and it needed to be fulfilled. You see, the story of Christmas didn't just start with Jesus' birth or the proclamation to Mary. The story of Christmas and why a Savior had to come started all the way back thousands of years before in the garden with Adam and Eve. It started all the way back when sin entered the world. We were separated from God, and he promised that one day a seed of man would come and crush the head of evil. And a Savior would come, a Messiah, an anointed one. And it's, that's when it started. It's a long story. The story of Christmas and why we have a Savior is a long story. God started it then, and over the years, thousands of years with his people, through ups and downs, he slowly unraveled this story given bits and pieces, more information as to how it was going to come, when it was going to happen, when it would come to fruition, and what it would look like. Until about 700 years before the actual birth of Jesus, that through God's word, through the prophets, we start to see clarity and a fullness of picture. God finally brings clarity and fullness to say, okay, this is happening Here's how and when and what and why and prepare yourselves. God brings us out of great despair and darkness all the way back from sin in the garden and gives us a glimpse of hope. 
And that's what we're going to look at today. We've got messages about hope and the hope of Christmas for the next four here with you guys. But today we're actually going to step all the way back and look at the prophecy of hope. And we're going to do that. There's lots of prophecies about the coming king, Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, but we're going to look specifically at kind of the big Christmas prophecy. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll read that in a minute here. We're actually going to read through verses 1 through 7. Uh, if you want to get your Bibles or phones out and prepare for that. But before we get there, I want you to at least understand, anytime we jump into Scripture, we should know a little bit about the book, the author, like what's going on. And this is prophecy, and Isaiah was a prophet. If you don't know anything about prophets, right, or prophets in Israel, or God's prophets to the Hebrews, we, prophets didn't actually have like a specific title or role, official role within God's people within Israel. Um, they spoke God's word. They were given God's word to give to his people, but they didn't have like an official title. The only official title given to God's people who could speak and have communion with him was the priesthood. These were not the part of the priesthood. These were prophets. But make no mistake, the prophets had God's word and they were giving God's word to his people. And this word that they gave to God's people over and over again wasn't always a word of joy and a word of peace. In fact, most of the time, as you saw on that video before, when God's prophets were speaking to his people, it's because they had fallen away or forsaken God. And so most of the time, God's prophets were speaking into the contempt of God's people, condemnation of God's people, and judgment of God's people. And much is the case with Isaiah here. So let's read Isaiah 9. We're going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through 7. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light is shown. For you have multiplied the nations, and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his depressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior, battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. For on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will you pray that scripture in with me? Lord, we come before you today uh, with open minds and open hearts. Lord, we, we pray that the words that, that come forth today from your word are truly that. They're not words of me or of man. Or anyone here, but Lord, we want those words to be your words to sink in, illuminate your truth, and show us that great light and joy and peace. 
Amen. Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah is a prophet, as I said. Isaiah is speaking to God's people. Now there's divisions in God's people at this point. There's a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah at different times is speaking directly to those different people groups. But make no mistake that when Isaiah is prophesying, it is to God's people. And God's people at this point, they weren't actually in a time of joy or peace. There was really no joy or peace. You see, historically what's going on is God's people have been under rule of different kings that haven't always followed God. They haven't always trusted in God. They've fallen away. They've fallen to trust other things. And, and, and in doing so, they've begun to fall into increased darkness. Not only that, but darkness is not only coming from their falling away, but they've been in battles. They've been under threat of war and invasion and captivity from the Syrian army, the Assyrian army, eventually the Babylonians. These are a people in distress. If you want a picture of what that looks like, there's two great pictures before chapter 9. Um, back in chapter 7, verse 10, Isaiah brings God's word to King Ahaz. Ahaz was a king that had trusted in others and put his faith in others for victory in battle and leading and guidance and not God. And there's this incredible scene here with Ahaz and the Lord where Ahaz... It says, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God was saying, Ahaz, ask for a sign and God will provide the sign. And this has happened before. This happened with Gideon. We'll talk to about him in a minute. But why he's saying ask for a sign, ask for any sign as deep and as wide and as great is that God is saying, Ahaz, you've fallen away, but I want you to trust in me. And show, ask for a sign, and I'll show you this sign so you can see it, and your faith in the Lord will be restored. And you can restore the faith of your people and lead them towards God and not away and towards others. And unfortunately, what happens is Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He refuses to ask for a sign, forsakes God, and turns away. And God says, well, not so fast. A sign's going to be given to you. And that's the great prophecy of the virgin birth. But that's who is leading God's people. That was the, 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 the picture of those kings leading God's people away from him and into deeper darkness and sin. And if you'd like a picture of like what that looks like, not just with the leaders, but the, the people of God at that point. Right before chapter 9, verse 22 of chapter 8, it says this. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness that's a picture of the state of God's people at this point it's not a picture of joy it's not a picture of peace it's not a picture of following the Lord it's definitely not a picture of righteousness God is saying that they are in a state of distress and are going to be thrust into a place of thick darkness and think about that Thick darkness, our Lord and God, the truth, is a picture of light. He is light, and he's saying, you're not going to be near the light. You're getting thrust into thick darkness because of your sin, contempt, and forsaking me. And it's tough. It would be tough to hear this message because they are already feeling the pressure of invasion, right? And battle and loss. And this is a message to God's people. Not just anybody, but God's people. God's people. 
God's people who he had been a provision for so many times. If you're familiar with your scripture, right, God saved amidst a terrible world, saved people through Noah and the flood. God came in with those people. He promised a multitude of nations through Abraham. God's people. Through Moses, with Moses, he saved them out of captivity, out of Egypt and enslavement. God's people, he provided for them. Right? With Joshua, he gave them into a promised land that was theirs, that they're in. It's God providing and taking care of his people. He promised an everlasting throne through King David. And he had his very presence reside in the temples built by Solomon. This is the same people that God is now saying, you have forsaken me, walked away. You're not going to feel that provision, that light. You're going to be thrust into utter darkness. That's where God's people are. And enter, that enters us into the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9. Somehow amidst his great mercy, a wonder of God, even as he's saying, you're going to fall into darkness. You're going to feel anguish and gloom and distress. He comes and says, but I'm not going anywhere. And he says, but... But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And hear this in verse 2. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shone. What's he saying here? God's saying you're, going, you're in darkness and distress and you're going deeper. It's a prophecy that threat is coming. God's using the impending armies to push these people into captivity in deepest darkness. And it's going to be felt hardest and deepest in this region of Naphtali and Zebulun. Naphtali and Zebulun, if you're familiar with it, if it strikes a chord or maybe it doesn't, that represents a region and a people group that are representative of two of the 12 tribes. Zebulun and Naphtali, and they are around the Galilee region as part of the northern kingdom. And darkness and despair are going to be felt most there because they are always first hit in battle when wars and armies come in. And so they're hit first and fastest and hardest, and they're going to feel the wrath of God and the darkest, the deepness. But God tells them there's going to be a time of darkness and distress. There's going to be that time of anguish, but there's another time coming. There's another time to coming, a latter time which will be glorious. It's a time of glory that's coming after the darkness, and it's coming with light. And he tells us, this is the great part of God. I said we get clarity and fullness. He doesn't stop there. God's going to unwind this prophecy for us, unroll it like a scroll. He says, there's glorious time coming, and it's going to come with a light. A light's going to shine through the darkness for you. He's unraveling hope, and he says that light is coming from Galilee. That light to spark hope for you out of darkness is coming out of Galilee. And those people in that region who have gone to felt the deepest darkness, a light is going to shine. It's a spark of hope for God's people who are getting ready to fall into deep darkness. Now Isaiah, he doesn't get in here and say, you know, who that is or what that is, like, or when that particular light is coming. He just says it's coming out of Galilee. Expect it. Look for it to come out of Galilee. And we know on the other side of this, 
that God's word is true. In fact, we know what that light is. Matthew speaks in his gospel, about chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 9. He says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them the light is dawned. And from that time, Jesus began preaching and saying, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The prophecy here, at the beginning of Isaiah, this very beginning of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. That light is Jesus and his ministry coming out of Galilee. And Isaiah tells us, look for a light in a latter time of glory. It's coming. Hope is coming. But he doesn't stop there. I get excited about this. I don't know if you guys get excited reading Old Testament prophets, but I get excited because this is talking about the birth of our Savior, and he's going to tell us when and how. So in verse 2, he told us what's going to happen. Look for a light coming out of Galilee. But then in verse 3, what is that light? What is that glory? What can we expect of it? Is it just light? Like, what do we experience? How do we know it's here? In verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Now understand, that you isn't Isaiah or Ahaz or Israel or the people or you and me. That you is God. You, God, have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy, and they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. It's an awesome picture. God starts pulling things together as prophecy unrolls. Not only does he say, yes, you're going to experience a time of darkness, but there's a time of glory coming. There's a time of glory coming, and it's coming with a light out of Galilee. Look for the light. There's going to be a light out of Galilee bringing hope. And, and don't, don't mistake that God is looking and saying, I know that I promised with Abraham a multitude of the nations, that this, you would have a multitude of the nations and they would multiply. And yes, you're going to experience a time of darkness. Captivity is coming. Distress is coming. God's very land that he promised to his people and his people are going to be scattered, taken away, taken captive, and it'll look like there's no hope. But he says, I haven't forgotten it. I promised it and I will fulfill that this nation will be multiplied. In this latter time of glory and of light, the nation will be multiplied. And when it's multiplied, you know what you can expect? You can expect joy. Joy is going to increase as the nation is multiplied out of this great light. Joy. And he doesn't stop. He continues to reveal more and more of this prophecy of hope. He says in verse 4, how are you going to do it? Okay, there's going to be a time of glory. I'm excited about it. Okay, there's going to be a time of light. I know what to look for. Okay, I, I understand that there's going to be joy out of that that we'll celebrate. But how are you going to do that when we're falling into such deep darkness? Verse 4 says, how? It says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff... For his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is great. He's saying the yoke, the staff, and the rod are going to be broken. What this is saying is that I'm going to do this by a great victory. I am going to bring you into a time of glory 
through light and a time of increase in the nations and a multiplication of joy because I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to defeat your enemies, the very yoke, rod, and staff of which I will break. It's going to be broken. And here's the great part. He says, as in the day of Midian. I don't know if you remember that story. We talked about Gideon earlier. The, the, the significance here with Midian is it references the story of Gideon against the Midianites. Yes, kind of rhymes. Um, so Gideon was the commander of an army and was facing the Midian army who was resting in this valley, impending attack. And this was a fierce army. Not just fierce, but vast. Scripture tells us that it was like locusts among the valley and can, camels that were so many and so vast it was like sand. This massive army, fierce army, and Gideon with his 20-some thousand troops was getting ready to face them, worried. And he put his trust in God, and God said, you know what, I'm going to deliver you from this battle, but not with 20,000-some men. Because I don't want anyone to look at this and say, well, it was us who defeated them, and it was our strength and our army. He said, no, I'm going to reduce your army. And so he reduces them and reduces them and reduces them until there's 300 men left. And Gideon has an army of 300 to go against a fierce army, so vast and fierce as locusts, as many camels as trying to count sand. And what happens is these 300 men surround the valley, and when they shout to the Lord and blow their trumpets, the swords of the Midian army turn against each other. They turn against each other, they defeat each other and run away in battle. And it's this immense victory that can be seen as nothing else but a miraculous victory done by the power of God. Not by the power of man, not by the power of Gideon, but by the power of God. And God is saying, I'm bringing you into light in a time of joy. I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to win this battle that's coming. And you're going to know it's me and not you. I'm coming to win this battle. And he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop because as, as, as people we would look and as, as the Israelites, they fought a lot of battles, right? And they would think, okay, great, he's coming to win a battle. I wonder if it's against the Assyrians or the Babylonians or who it's against because that's what they were facing. But he said, no, 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 this isn't one battle. Look in verse 5. He says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It might be a tough one to walk through, so let's walk through that. The boot of the tramping warrior and the garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The fire is God's purpose, plan, and glory. And what he's saying is here is when this battle is won, it's going to be final. It's going to be final. For I'm taking the very boots, the garments rolled in blood, the very efforts of your enemies, of the enemies of God, and they're going to be burned and used for my good and my glory. He's saying that when this battle is won, there's no enemy that will be able to stand against the Lord. In fact, all of those enemies, anything they could do, will be turned to my glory. This battle is going to be final. This victory is going to be complete. Do you feel how this is growing? Do you feel the prophecy growing? He starts off saying you're going to be in a time of darkness. You're going to be in a time of despair and distress, but hope is coming. Hope's coming. And he starts to tell you, hope's coming. There'll be a time of glory and look for the light. Look for the light in Galilee. 
And when that light comes, this nation's going to multiply and you're going to be multiplied with joy. And you're going to get there because I'm coming to win a battle. And when I win that battle, it's going to be complete. And you're going to celebrate in joy. And so as people, as Israelites back then, you've got to be looking at this going, who are you sending? Who are you bringing? Are you sending an army of angels? Are you sending the thunder and the lightning? I mean, we're talking about enemies and darkness and blood and boost and burning for the fire. So who are you sending to win this great battle? And Isaiah doesn't stop. He tells him. He tells him right here in verse 6. It says, for to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder and his name will be called. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The greatest battle and victories God's going to win over darkness, distress, enemies, sword, is going to be won by a child. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of folks out there that that they're not Christians. Um, they don't have any belief in God, and they look at the Bible. And the stories in here, and they kind of think, well, it's all well and good, but really they're just stories you guys made up along the years to kind of make yourself feel better because Christians can't really handle tough stuff and death and afterlife. And so it's all well and good, but they're just stories. But let me tell you, when you read something like this, if I was writing a story about a great battle that was going to be built or that was going to be won and fought and destroyed and armies and swords and darkness and despair— you're not sending the meekest among us to fight that battle. You're not sending the meekest, most helpless among us, a child, a baby, to win the battle over darkness. Especially when you understand the armies that were getting ready to come in and take over. But I think what happens is that many of us, just like many people who don't follow Jesus, we don't understand the battle that's actually about to be fought. You see, the battle, Israel had fought a lot of battles over thousands of years. Israel had fought a lot of battles against other people, other nations, other kings. Battles for land and for gold and for glory. They had fought with sword and with fire. They had fought lots of battles. They had won lots of battles. They had lost lots of battles. But this isn't that battle. This isn't the battle that's being fought here. You see, what God does in chapter 9, verse 6, is he flips everything on its head, and he says, oh, you don't know what's coming. He flips it on his head, and he says, there's no strength in you that can win this battle. Because this isn't a battle against a nation or an army. This isn't a battle for gold or land. This is a battle that started in the garden. This is a battle that started when sin entered the world. And I promised that one day it would be defeated, that a son would come and crush the head of evil. This is a battle that we don't just fight out here, but it's a battle that's fought right in here. And it's a battle that no matter how strong you are, how great your king is, how vast your army is, it's a battle that you can't win. But I'm coming, and I'm sending a son. I'm sending a child to defeat 
sin and evil. And when it does, you're going to know who this child is. You're going to know this light that's coming out of Galilee. You're going to know this light that's going to bring with it great joy that you can celebrate. Because he will be called, and these aren't names, this is who he is. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He's saying when this child comes, when you see this light, you'll know this light. And you will rejoice in it because this is a light that is going to bring wisdom for all God's people. Wisdom in our lacking. It's a light that is going to be mighty, so strong that nothing can overcome it. It's a light that is going to be, and this is so good, an everlasting father. Nations and people in us today, we look to others, right? We look to kings and families and friends and government for who is really caring for us. And he says, this one that's coming, this light that's coming, is an everlasting father, and he's going to care for his people now and into eternity. And I love the last name. Because for a people that had felt darkness and were going to be thrust into more darkness, that had lost battles and wars and felt captivity and slavery and the fierceness of the sword, he says, and this light's bringing peace. It's going to bring a transformative peace, a peace that you will feel and celebrate, and he will rule his government from now into eternity with peace. And there will be no end love that picture. What are we looking for? What is this hope going to be? It's going to be hope, joy, and peace. And God doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. We've already gotten this promise, this fulfillment of, uh, that he had in the garden of defeating evil, and he says, I'm sending one to do it. And I haven't forsaken the promise to multiply the nations. Joy and multiplication of the nation is coming. And he said, and this one who's coming to rule this government. I haven't forgotten the promise to David because this one is coming on the throne of David. And over that kingdom, into eternity, he's going to rule it with justice and righteousness. This is great. He doesn't, and this is so good with God. If you want to trust God, read scriptures and he is unfailing. See, God has always called his people to one thing. He's called you towards loving him with, and acting with righteousness. God wants us to be righteous. And that's what he's saying. He's going to uphold it and he's going to rule from that point into eternity with nothing new, nothing you have to learn, nothing you have to be afraid of. He's coming with justice and with righteousness. And it's going to be from that point forevermore. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's an everlasting hope. It's everlasting joy and it's everlasting peace that's going to increase in his kingdom. I look at it in this, this picture of the deepest darkness to the greatest joy and peace. It's an incredible prophecy of hope that gets this fullness and clarity of picture in the prophets. But I think the end's the best. The very end here. Because we've gotten the where and the what and the who and the how of this prophecy of hope. He's bringing this coming king, this Messiah, this anointed one that's a light out of the darkness, bringing forth a reign in a coming kingdom forevermore of joy and of peace and increasing the nations. But why? Why would God do that? 
We're a people that have fallen away. Israel have fallen away hard. They're going into deep darkness, distress. Look at those words, darkness, distress, anguish. Why would God do it? And I love it. He says he's going to do it, not because he actually owes it to any of us. He's not going to defeat evil forevermore because we did something good or he's found good in one of our hearts. He's not going to do it because he looks at this nation and says, well, I'm, I kind of have to. Or, oh, they really, really want it, so I'll do it. Because there's nothing in us that means he should do it. He does it because he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He's doing it. If you don't understand the zeal of the Lord of hosts, he's saying he is going to do it because he has a passion for his glory. God's doing it because he has a passion for his glory. That's it. And here's the best part. You know what he's really, really passionate about? You. He's passionate about us. He's so passionate about us that when we fell from him, he gave us a promise to redeem us. He's so passionate about us that he loves us amidst the greatest darkness to go and bring us a light. He's so passionate and loves us so much that he's going to bring us peace and joy forevermore. That's the hope that's coming to these people. That's the hope that we saw fulfilled in the birth of our Messiah and our Savior. That's the hope that we had that was born out of Jesus that gives you joy and peace that you can celebrate today in Christmas. I'm going to invite the team up here as I uh, kind of finish this message. We've got some great stuff ahead in the service, guys. Like, we've got some cool stuff. I'm excited. Um, I love seeing baptisms and messages. Isaiah 9, it's a prophecy of hope, the hope of a Messiah and coming king the hope out of darkness, that God will not forsake his people even as we fall away, the hope of light coming out of Galilee, the hope of an increase in the nation and great joy, the hope of a battle won forevermore. If you know Jesus as your Savior today, if you call yourself a Christian out there, my hope and prayer for you is that this Christmas season, you celebrate, and I mean celebrate, joy and peace. And you celebrate joy and peace because it's yours to claim. It's yours to claim because Jesus brought us out of the darkness when he came as his son. It's yours to claim and enjoy and show the world that we have a Savior who grants us joy and peace. Celebrate it this Christmas. Celebrate that light. Let the light that Jesus brought be on your face so people see it and they're like, why are they so happy? Celebrate it. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, maybe, or maybe you do, and you're, you're out there and you're like, I, you know, this whole joy and peace thing, I'm not real familiar with. Maybe I haven't felt joy and peace in a long time. Maybe you're out there and thinking, um, that's great, but I actually kind of fit more in that darkness and despair peace. The world's tough right now. It's tough to find out who we should trust in, where we can find not even joy and peace, but just hope. That's out there. If you're out there and that's you today, I want you to know that that light out of the darkness, that promised peace and hope is for you too. It's for you. 
Jesus came for you. A light out of the darkness, a hope, and to celebrate joy and peace for you. But it's hard. But I want you to hear some truth out of that uh, poem that I read. So I talked about that poem, um, The Bells of Christmas by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And if you're familiar with the story, it's a great story, but it's, it's, it's hard. So it wasn't written out of a time of peace. And it wasn't written out of a time of joy. It was written out of a time of darkness and despair for him. So a couple years before he wrote it, he had a tragic accident with his wife, and she died in a fire. And then just before he wrote it, he got a letter from, his, from the army that his son had been shot and possibly paralyzed, his oldest son. And so he wrote that story, that, that poem, out of a place of darkness and hurt and not seeing joy and peace and hope. And he finishes it up and he says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong. And it mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill to men. He said he's in despair. And maybe you're there today and you feel despair and you feel hate. And you're like, I just don't know where to go and I want that joy. And I want that peace. He finishes it with some truth. He said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. For wrong will fail and right will prevail with peace on earth and goodwill to men. It's hope and it's a promise that says even out of the darkness you can feel today that there's a light that came with the son of Jesus that we're celebrating on Christmas and he can bring you hope and bring you peace and it's for you and I want you to have that today. I want you to celebrate that at Christmas. Celebrate Jesus as a light. Merry Christmas, everyone.